So this is what I advise emerging franchisors on is like one of the biggest secrets that I've learned. It's not really a secret, but it's something that I've learned is like operations and sales or development, however you phrase it, have to talk to each other. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. What's up, Wolfpack? Today's episode features Aaron Harper of Rolling Studs. This is flat out one of the best conversations on the art of franchising I've had to date, and also on how to do it in a responsible way that maximizes the potential of the franchise model. If you're a franchisee or a franchise buyer, listening to Aaron's methodology to ensure that every franchisee brought into his brand is supported is super valuable to understand what you should look for as you evaluate brands, whether it's this power washing franchise rolling studs or a different brand in a separate industry. And for, emer- and for emerging franchisors, this is also a gold mine of information as you can get insight into the absolute best practices for setting up your franchise system for success. Hope you all enjoy. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. I know chem dry is where a lot of your early experience comes from in the franchising side of things. So, you know, chem how did dry, that come to- and then, and then yeah. really I learned from the patch boys, chem okay. dry, I couldn't really make any difference in cause it was a 40 year old brand, but yeah. patch boys, I, the company I worked for acquired that and it was 40 franchisees and five of them were happy, total irresponsible emerging franchisor lied to them, did whatever. And then me and a fa- me and the brand president that we hired essentially did a full turnaround of it, and then turned it into the biggest drywall repair company in two years. So wow. that's really okay. where I Chem Dry was just me selling franchises. Patch Boys yeah. is where I learned how to run a franchise system. Okay, well, at a high level, how do you go into a system that's got a bunch of unhappy franchisees and make it better? Do you just have to cut ties with a lot of them because it's they're past the point of no return? For sure, there's part of that. You try to offer them solutions to the problems that they're having. You build systems around the things they need. And really, before you do any of that, you go on a listening tour and figure out what the common themes are across all the franchisees and what they need. And then you build systems around what they need. And we paid for them to go to training. We did whatever we could to get them fully engaged in the business. But I mean, I had franchisees that were like, I was told I could run this business from the trading desk in the New York Stock Exchange in a different state. And it's like, that's not how business works. So, All right, so I'm sure the work is obviously difficult, but conceptually, it sounds like you go on a research tour, figure out, like you said, the commonalities amongst the franchisees, and then you as the franchisor, I mean, that's obviously the whole selling point of our franchises. You would have thought that was already in place, but given that you guys took over this and it wasn't in place, your job was then to, okay, like we need to provide the systems that Correct. clearly don't exist. Yeah. Cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, today, 
I'm looking it at, at it online. They've got, as of the recent FTD, 320-ish franchises open. So clearly a good turnaround. Thanks. Was there anything you learned from a development perspective in the sense of, right, development headlines, even sold, gets all, you know, it, it, that's like the metric people focus on. But is there almost, I think there's a delayed gratification maybe angle that I'm trying, I'm hoping it lies here in that, did you notice like once you set up the systems, once franchisees were performing well, not only could you ideally write quote unquote scale faster because you actually had the infrastructure set to train all these new franchisees. Did you notice any correlation between like, okay, once our franchisees were performing well and our systems were actually dialed in, then like the rest of the development process took care of itself to some degree or, or? It did. Yeah. So this is what I advise emerging franchisors on is like one of the biggest secrets that I've learned. It's not really a secret, but it's something that I've learned is like, operations and sales or development, however you phrase it, have to talk to each other. So part of the reason we were able to scale by 223 locations in 24 months is because we spent six months, me and the brand president, basically in the trenches with franchisees, figuring everything out. And we were effectively the first two full-time employees on the business that had 100 units sold, but you know, not necessarily a hundred units open. And so we trusted each other and he oversaw the operations. And then once we were prepared to scale, I oversaw franchise development. And so we would talk sometimes four to five times a day and we're a hundred percent aligned. And so what happens when you do that is basically development's not over-promising and operations is delivering exactly what development says. And so then what ends up happening is, is then the franchisees launch and they have the experience that was set in the development process. And so when they then validate, it's like, yeah, everything they told me that was true happened or everything they told me would happen, happened. Yeah. And so then you get to a position at that point where it's not like, hey, we got to go do discovery days and we got to do this song and dance. It's like, listen, here's the business. Let me have you talk to four franchisees and they can share their experience. And then, you know, effectively, do you want to move forward at that point? The other thing that I would say is like, we turned away between one to three franchisees a month. And so when I advise emerging franchisors, like, listen, not everyone's right for your system. And part of the reason you need a considerable amount of capital is because you want to be able to turn that, those checks from the wrong people away. Because if you get to a position where you're, you know, have, X number of employees supporting franchisees and you need to make payroll, you're going to take the check from the wrong person. And so part of that kind of capital burn or capital raise is going to be the burn, the capital you burn to find the right people. And with Rolling Suds, like we've turned away 28 people now in eight and a half months, like 28 people. We do two territory minimum. Most of our franchisees end up buying three. We don't sell more than three unless someone scaled a business before, because I think that's the responsible thing to do. So you know, 60 to 90 territories basically that weren't right, which is a lot of money for an emerging franchisor, but it's going to make a huge difference in a year. Yeah. Especially if, if those are organic leads and you're not paying out brokers, that's a lot of money you just turned away, but you've seen the pitfalls of it. So I want to get to kind of how, you know, you came to be the CEO of Rolling Suds, but just something you said, I mean, I, I think one, I like that you're basically aligning expectations between sales and operations so that when a new franchisee comes in, you know, there's not that 
oh shit moment. Like this is way different than what I was told, which is obviously bad from like a cultural and a trust perspective with a franchisee. And, you know, there's that classic, I don't know if you've heard this, but like, you know, franchise salespeople sell the dream, operations inherit the nightmare. Like that's not (laughs) you want your franchise to be run. (laughs) But I'm curious, have you, it's obviously, I I would imagine different for non-brick and mortar brands versus a brick and mortar brand that depends on finding a good site. But like, was there like a ratio and even a timeline for franchises sold to franchises open that you strive to hit? Yeah. So our minimum is, is nine weeks what we call our power launch program and then one week in person. So it's 10 weeks. Why are you a franchise fee today? Like I bought, I signed all the paperwork where I'm in, I'm joining rolling studs 10 weeks later, I'm opening up. Yep. Unless the trainings are full. So we cap each franchise training at five franchise groups because the amount of infrastructure that goes on into those nine weeks prior to training is considerable. We've got like 16 different suppliers. They all need to be marching in the same direction. And then I've got a VP of onboarding and about, I mean, between me and the founders, there's 13 people on the team. And so it's not really the bottleneck above five is not actually the in-person training. It's everything that needs to happen before. So I think an emerging franchisor, and this is another piece of advice that I give emerging franchisors, is you need to know exactly the amount of capital you need to get a unit open and operating in cash flowing, and then you should only sell the amount of units that you have the capital to support. So like right now, January's full, February's full. And so the soonest you'd be able to go to training is March. But that's because I know exactly how much infrastructure it takes to make sure those franchisees launch successfully. Yeah. Now, as I hire more people and as we scale more, like that, those numbers may change, but where it's currently at right now. Okay. That's amazing. I mean, 10 weeks from franchise fee to open is phenomenal. Obviously, as you said, it could be a bit longer if, if there's the training's full. So it sounds like one training a month you do, which it seems to be somewhat common, uh, like end of the month is training week or something like that. I am curious, how do you kind of track and manage, right? Because I'd imagine with each incremental franchisee that joins Rolling Suds, there might be it's more like, let's call it maintenance or operational support then that is demanded of your team. So, you know, do you ever think, oh, well, even though we can uh, afford like with our cash flow support training another five, but it's like, oh, but then that new five, they're going to launch. And we know in month one, those five new franchisees are going to be calling us every day with mm-hmm. questions. Like, how do you think about that? Yeah. So I basically have, including the founders, plus our business coach, plus what my marketing team does to support franchisees from a leads perspective, we effectively have full four coaches that support franchisees at different levels. And the industry standard, I think, is like between 20 to 30 franchisees per business coach. We've launched five franchisees in 15 territories. We launched and we started franchising in February. Our first training was in June. Our next training was in August, and then we had a training last week. So we have 22 units open and operating across seven franchisees right now. But we have 13 people on the team. So we have essentially double the amount of staff that we do franchisees open and operating. And that was by design. Yeah. I know what we need to do now to support a 300-unit system and the systems we need to build now and then when to like kind of pre-hire some people. And then I'm interviewing a new person and building my bench once every 10 days. And we've typically hired, we, like this year, we've hired someone every 14 to 18 days on average since February. 
So yeah, I mean, you need to know what you can basically handle to deliver on what you tell a franchisee from a support standpoint. And then suppliers provide a ton of support in addition to that, like, and they're referred to as vendors in other industries. And like I said, we have like 16 different suppliers who help with marketing and bookkeeping and call centers and all these other things that are in addition to those that the staff that I have in place. Incredible. It's a bit scary to think that 20 to 30 franchisees per business coach is the standard. But I guess back to that, my earlier question with, it sounds like, I mean, you have the training dialed in, you under, you, you clearly have a plan in place for when you need to make hires to support your growing number of franchisees. But, you know, I did ask about like the ratio of, let's say, units sold to units open. So given you gave that 10 week timeline, and I also just want to point out if some, for anyone listening to this, if you're in the franchisor side of things, this is obviously important because you probably want to hit these goals. But if you're a franchisee, these are things you should be asking the franchisor. You know, hey, I saw you have 400 units sold, which there are a few brands that have sold that much. How many are actually getting open? That's what matters at the end of the day. So are you close to 100% of units open relative to units sold? No. So we've sold 59 units, Yeah, which is a total of 20 franchisees. We did three trainings this year. So June, our cap this year was three per class, but that was because we added more staff. And so now our cap is, is five. There's an element of like when the best time to launch is of our business because it's power washing. So we didn't launch anyone in December. And so the franchisees who have signed or who are signing now are opening in Q1 of next year. Got it. So we're at 59 sold, 22 open but everyone else is signing now and opening next year at the right time for the business, right? So there's an element of that to it. Next year will be a lot closer to sold 10 weeks later, open, sold 10 weeks later, open, but we capped it at what we knew we could handle yeah. the right way this year. And I guess, you know, maybe units sold, maybe that'd be the best way to ask it because it's more like uh, how many franchisees have bought territories versus, right? So like 59 is probably the number of territories they signed on for, but it sounds like you guys have, what was that? Seven franchisees. Seven franchisees open that yeah. we, and what we do is we open all the territories at the same time. And then we we invest part of the franchise fee back into marketing in their local market. In addition Finally. to what they do. <laughs> That's what it's supposed to be for. No one ever says that. <laughs> Holy crap, man. Yeah. I mean, I remember uh, like one of my first weeks on the job, I learned about this industry started at a franchise sales organization. So really sad at the intersection between franchisors and that franchisee transaction. And But my boss early on was former director of development for Athnasium and a few other brands. So he's been in the industry for a lot of years, super knowledgeable guy. And I, you know, I remember asking, like, what's the franchise fee for? Like, is that just like money that the franchise like, we're just going to take? Or like, well, wh- how do I sell that to someone? And he's like, no, man. He's like, it's there for a reason. He's like, it's actually not much profit, if any. You know, and one of the big things is like, yeah, like, we will use a big chunk of this to help them get open, to buy staff in for the grand opening, because it was like a brick and mortar brand. And they're like, also, we're going to spend $10,000 on Facebook ads right off the bat for them. And I was yeah. like, oh, sweet. But like that never happens because most people just give 80 or 50 to 80% of the fee away to brokers and, you know, it's uh, hard to do. So I love that. And we do it in-house. That's, as you know, we've talked about this, like that's my background, right? Is franchise development. That's what I've done for years. 
And I switched from franchise development into being a franchisor because I thought that there was a better way to do it. And so what we do is we invest that back into lead gen and the infrastructure to help them generate leads and all of that, which allows them to have a more successful launch. And so we're able to keep the majority of the franchise fee because of the way our cost structure is built and doing it in-house. When I talk to an emerging franchisor that's like, should I hire a franchise sales organization or should I do it in-house? You know, they're either going to spend capital or they're going to spend time. Yeah. And so what I suggest is if they do it with a franchise sales organization, make sure you're firm with who your buyer is and who your buyer is not. And I would say do that before you sign the agreement and say, this is the only type of buyer I will allow in. And then if it's with a franchise sales organization, they're typically going to have about 10% of the franchise fee left over, if that depending on how long it takes them to sell their first unit. If it's a one unit location or a two to three unit location, they could theoretically burn up to $250,000 before they've even sold their first unit. And so they're going to need a lot more money capital wise to support franchisees if they go with a franchise sales organization due to the lack of capital that they'll have from those franchise fees. Yeah, I think that's something a lot of folks don't think through enough. It's just the capital projections, right, based on how they're selling franchises. Because, yeah, I mean, you're really banking on hitting royalty self-sufficiency if you're not making much from the franchise fee. And it can take a lot longer than people anticipate for that. Well, look, I want to dive into Rolling Suds. We've talked a lot about the franchising side, but obviously you had a successful turnaround with the Patch Boys, as we touched on. But, you know, when did you take a pause and decide, I'm going to look for something different? What's the your origin story with being involved and ultimately leading and franchising this power washing business? As we built Patch Boys up to be the biggest drywall repair company in the world, we did that in about two years. And we sold 223 locations and we opened 223 locations. And we did that in 24 months. And so we basically built systems that allowed us, like when I left that brand, we were launch, we were signing up a new franchisee every seven days or so. And then every six weeks, we were launching, opening seven franchisees that had 15 to 20 territories. And we opened all the territories immediately with marketing and infrastructure. So I learned a ton. And then I was being asked by different conferences, you know, some of them, FLDC, Springboard, to go and talk about how we did that, essentially. And so I was approached by different people in the industry who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, David Barr, Brad Fishman, you know, people that they're, you know, titans of of the industry. And they're like, Aaron, whatever you do next, like, I'm in. If you want me, like, I'm in. I'd love to invest if you give me the opportunity to be part of it. And I think I could bring more than just capital. I think I could provide mentorship. And so I was able to be selective. I didn't know that I was going to do this. I thought maybe I'd start a business and do some type of, you know, franchise development strategy that would be kind of a little bit more transparent and that kind of stuff. I, I decided, listen, the only way I'm going to be able to 100% control what happens to the franchisee after the franchisee signs the franchise agreement is if I own the company, own the brand, own have you know majority control, majority ownership. And so I set out to, to look for a business that I believed in, in the residential and commercial services space, because that's been my niche for years, and uh, looked at about two dozen businesses, which a lot of people who listen to your podcast are evaluating concepts. I was essentially in the same position as people who are looking to buy a franchise as last year, right? Just from the perspective of franchise to business to franchise. 
looked at two dozen HVAC, plumbing, solar, insulation, tree care. Met the founders of Rolling Suds in September. It was hands down the best business I evaluated. It hit every single box on my buy box. And founders are incredible people, family business, 33 years old. You know, the Wendling family are just incredible, humble guys. And then we decided to partner. We finalized the transaction in January of this year of 2023. I acquired the franchising rights and I partnered with them in the franchise entity. They continue to run their corporate location, but they provide support in replicating their model. Raised capital at the same time. Didn't know what a cap table was before I started raising capital. <laughs> Like literally, I didn't know what a waterfall was. I didn't know what a class yep. A, B, or C share was. And finalized both those transactions in January, started franchising in February, and have now become one of the fastest growing franchises in the country. I believe we've kind of struck a chord with a lot of, you know, me and you talked about like the small business community of people who are kind of buy and then build, like that whole kind of space, I think are realizing that instead of buying a $2 million business that does, you know, half a million in seller's discretionary earnings, and then having to step into an HVAC business that they know nothing about, where the general manager could be, you know, best friends with the CEO and leave when he leaves, or the main yep. client that gives $200,000 a year in revenue only likes the CEO. So he leaves, like, it ultimately could be theoretically more risky than finding a good franchisor who cares deeply about franchisee success pay less money to get in and with the right infrastructure be cash flowing relatively quickly depending on if they how well they follow the model. And so yeah, so we franchised uh in February and now we're we're growing and super proud of what we've built. We've got 13 people on the team and we're cranking along and having a lot of fun. It's amazing even just the speed at which you moved that were you know, a year ago today, this wasn't even happening. <laughs> and now I feel like the way you've been talking, it feels like, you know, you've been at it for years, which, you know, you have in franchising, but um, it speaks to the, you know, good success you've had so far with Rolling Suds. So that's really cool to hear. Yeah, man. I mean, I think there's a lot to talk about there. What kind of calculus did you do in the industry? Like you mentioned HVAC, plumbing, and a few others. And, you know, I randomly actually used to work in the HVAC industry and I think something I've learned that I even worked with a, a franchise, not in HVAC, but in commercial security from a tech perspective, like cameras and whatnot. Anyway, where I'm going with this is like, I worry it to a degree, it's obviously doable, but I worry to a degree of folks buying into a franchise where they can't do the work. So like HVAC is one of them, right? Unless you're a licensed HVAC technician, you know, you can't do that. And I also just know for that one specifically, it's not like something you just kind of figure out in a year. I mean, you, like the best HVAC technicians have been doing it for like 10 years straight right. and they're masters of their craft. And that is very rare to find, at least in the Northeast where I work. So anyway, I digress. I don't know. I don't think there's anything like that in power washing. But, you know, outside of the business, like Rolling Suds that was being run by uh, that family, right? Like, was there anything about the industry that, you know, you liked uh, and thought, okay, this can go national? Because there really isn't a major power washing franchise out there. Yeah, so it doesn't exist. There's no national yep. leader in power washing. So on my list of things that I was looking for in a business, there were need-to-haves and then there were nice-to-haves. And there were two nice-to-haves. And so I'll talk about one thing that you mentioned first, which was on my need-to-have, which is unskilled labor. There you um, go. With a, the last business I worked on, we needed drywall technicians that had at least five years of experience. Okay, that is really hard to find. 
We helped franchisees find an employee prior to opening. Every one of those franchisees that launched had an employee hired prior to going to opening. But sometimes franchisees were handcuffed to a bad employee because you couldn't really be quick to hire and quick to fire, which I think is it gives you less control on your business if you can't do that. And so I think it was single-handedly the thing that prevented franchisees from scaling to a multi-million dollar operation was the employee piece. And so any business that I'm involved in will forever will be unskilled labor that I can teach and train because I franchisees will have more control on their business if they can fire someone if they're not doing well and hire someone quickly and put them out on the on the road. So that was, I agree with you 100%. The two things that I had on my nice to have list were a difference in product offering than the competition. So something that is objectively better that no one else has, okay? So obviously that's hard to find because you're talking about like proprietary equipment and technology and things that like are very seldom found in a business. Yep. So we have equipment that we custom retrofit ourselves. And with that equipment and our process on how we run the equipment, we can power wash four or five stories from the ground. We power wash roofs from the ground. We don't have to get up on ladders. It's wild. We also move about four times faster than normal power washers. So we do a 3,000 square foot house in 20 to 25 minutes, start to finish, set up, tear down everything. That takes a normal power washer who buys a machine at Home Depot four hours, three and a half hours maybe. So we're really attractive to a commercial customer, which is our predominant focus because the cost per customer acquisition versus the lifetime value of the customer on the commercial side is staggering. And our trucks are effectively overkill for 95% of jobs, but that allows us to do the 5% of jobs that no one else can do. So the biggest example of a difference in product offering in an industry would be the iPhone when it came out. Like there wasn't anything comparable to the iPhone. There was the BlackBerry and the Motorola Razor and the Nokia brick phone. That was it. And then Apple came out and they're like, this thing's like objectively better than everything else and revolutionized the cell phone industry. So we have that. Rolling says has that. It is proprietary. We don't even do discovery days because my uh, lawyer advised me not to. So, which is wild. It's just so cool. The other thing that was a nice to have, but not a need to have is little to no competition in the franchise space. So if you just talk about HVAC or plumbing, you go and you look at a market, let's just say Charlotte, you see that there is a considerable amount of like local guys that do X number of millions of dollars a year and have some base level of sophistication. In addition to that, in a market, you have five to 10 other franchise brands that are doing the same thing, right? And I knew that whatever business I franchised, regardless of whether or not I had that, I'd be able to create a product, you know, a product and a service that was compelling enough to then grow into the biggest in the world, regardless of not having that. But having that makes it a lot easier to do that. And when I dug into power washing, there wasn't anyone doing what we're doing. Not only was there not a national leader, there wasn't even a regional leader. And so I joined every single power washing Facebook group that you can think of. Power washing bros, power washing (laughs) superheroes, power washing superstars, power washing business owners, and learned that the majority of the industry is led by people who do the power washing themselves. Yep. And they're making good money. I mean, they're making six figures themselves doing the power washing six months out of the year. And so I thought to myself, well, if we bring some base level of sophistication, some consistency and customer experience, a wrapped brand, some technology, wrapped trucks you know, polos like that, we'd be able to completely sophisticate and revolutionize the industry. The biggest example of this happening was 1-800-GOT-JUNK in the 90s. 
the junk business back then was a dude that had a truck and put junk in the back of his business. And then they came in with everything I just talked about and show that there's this massive market sold out everything in the country, everything in Canada, and paved the way for college hunks hauling junk and junk king and junk luggers and some of these brands that you can't get territory for if you tried. And so we're doing to the power washing industry what 1-800-GOT-JUNK did the junk business in the 90s currently. And so if you have both of those things, difference in product offering, and you're the first sophisticated operator, it's the recipe for real yeah. disruption. Yeah, you're telling me. And just the way you're talking about it uh, with like wrapping things in technology and kind of doing some fundamental work that maybe isn't done well across the industry. Um, I'm going to butcher the quote, but I had... Uh, Chris Kenny, who's a uh, founder in, of Level 5 Capital, you know, a somewhat large franchise PE firm. But um, he said, like, the franchises he looks for and he thinks the best franchises are, you know, professionalizing a small business concept that really hasn't been taken to, like, that level yet of professionalization and sophistication. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing with your concept. So it's honestly uh, really compelling. And, you know, from uh, this is maybe a bit in the weeds of the operations, but I'm curious, like, how does it work with cold weather climates? You know, like I grew up in New Jersey. If you're power washing something in January, I mean, that water's going to freeze, right? Or is there like antifreeze you just put in it and <laughs> it takes care of it? No. So we're our, our corporate location. That was my first question as well. Our corporate yeah. location is the five counties in Philadelphia and New Jersey. That's our corporate location. So for 33 years, we've continued to grow annually in a colder climate market. And we just do 80% of our revenue in eight and a half months in the year. So, and what I'll say is, I mean, there's a couple things. If it's above 40, we're power washing. If it's 40 or higher, we're power washing. If it's below that, we're not. Because we're so heavy in commercial business, we'll give discounts to our commercial customers if they allow us to come out sometime in November when it's above 40. And that allows the business to be a little bit less seasonal. Very few power washers are focusing heavily on commercial. In the markets we've entered, we've been majority commercial with brand new franchisees, which has been incredible. And they're opening in the more colder climates. Some of them are opening in the colder climates on the back half of the residential season, which is July, August. And they're doing really well still because of the commercial. So what was encouraging to me is, A, it works in, in, it has worked for three decades in more colder climate. But for those who are in Southern climates, like the economics we have are based on a 205-day year, right? So that's very different in Florida or California or Texas or Tennessee or the Carolinas. So it was really encouraging to me before deciding to franchise the business. That's, you know, to as much as of an extent as you can, you know, I want to touch on the economics, especially as we, you know, talked about aligning expectations for franchisees coming in. I mean, yeah, I covered your brand in, in, in my newsletter on the Thursday edition. So I just broke down the FDD stats. And I mean, the numbers are eye popping, right? Like <laughs> ridiculous item 19. I think it was, you know, it tops out a little under 200K on the investment range, but I think it was like 2.2 million in revenue, a little bit over 800,000 in potential profit or EBITDA. Anyway, my point is, is like, given, right, you've said this business has been around for 30 years, you know, how do you manage that conversation and set the expectations that like, hey, this isn't, you know, the numbers you're seeing, that's what it, for some, for someone has grown to. But, you know, how do you manage their expectations that they're not coming in 
year one thinking, oh, I'm about to make, you know, 800,000 in, in net profit every year. Yeah, no. And I'm super clear about the right expectations. So what I did just from like a logistics standpoint is I said, okay, well, we've got this 33 year old business, hard to replicate 2.2,818,000. But what I can replicate is the efficiencies on one truck. I had them break down the revenue that they do per truck and divide their expenses by the number of full-time trucks that they have. And then I said, what do I need to create from a training perspective to replicate this truck? Because at that point, it's just hours the truck is on the road and the amount of revenue you're bringing in per hours and then whatever the expenses are. And I can replicate a truck hundreds of times because it's at that point, it's just marketing. It's labor costs. It's just the the standard expenses and the fixed expenses go down or will they say the same rather as you add more trucks, which increases that margin and all of that stuff. So I set the yes. expectation that franchisees are not going to have that margin with one truck because their fixed expenses are higher. So the economies of scale make a ton of sense though, because as you mentioned, once you get up to those kind of numbers, you're talking about 35 to 40% EBITDA after franchise fees and royalties and monthly costs based upon our, you know, 2023 current franchise disclosure document. So that's really how I've broken it down because it it makes sense that way. And then I created trainings on how to do that. And then yep. what I'll also say is Brian Wenling Jr. over the operations of the business from his father in 2016. His father was very much a visionary. Let's try this. Let's try that and figured out the proprietary process that we offer, right? He figured it out by just doing the opposite of what the industry taught him to do, basically. Figured out a better way to do it. His son came in after college and effectively professionalized the business by creating systems and implementing structure, hiring managers, creating sales, like salespeople. Yeah. And so since then, the business has grown by between 200 to $400,000 a year every year since Brian Jr. has been involved. And a large part of that reason is we have two outbound commercial lead generation companies that have worked with our founders. One they've worked with for seven years and another one they started working with four years ago. And so I approached them and said, I need a paper lead basis for franchisees. I need you to, I need to, dis, you know, and I negotiated with them. And we essentially have an internal cold outreach to commercial customers program. And that's Fantastic. a large part of the growth and the reason for the growth. And so that's what I speak about is just exactly what, what has happened and, and how it's gotten there. And so I believe that if a franchisee comes in and invests $250,000, $300,000 and does our system, they'll get to those numbers considerably faster. It's not going to take 33 years because we're just taking their model, condensing it down, and then just, it's a trucks, it's just a math problem on how many trucks you can get. Yeah, I love that. It makes total sense to think through, all right, like you're going to start with one truck. You have a certain level of fixed costs on day one. And, you know, obviously each truck has more costs, but your margin, you know, it makes sense that it'll get better and better as you add trucks. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's going to be exciting to watch kind of uh, these franchisees perform, you know, over the next few years. And even just, you know, hearing you talk about it, you, you clearly have such an operational focus and that's, you know, a great thing. Something I've noticed in the service franchises, right? The non-brick and mortar brands, 
is, you know, like I've had folks who, you know, I had Greg Flynn on this show who has like 2,500 franchises all in the fast food or fast casual space. And then or he did just buy Planet Fitnesses. But, you know, had other folks who own hundreds of locations. They're always brick and mortar franchises. You know, you've really broken down this business to just one truck. And then it's like, hey, rinse and repeat that with new every new truck you add. And that sounds like to me the same mindset of a brick and mortar operator, right? Because that's why they're able to scale. It's like, all right, I have my four walls. There's a ceiling on how much I can do within those four walls. And once I hit it, I'm opening up another location. I'm just doing that over and over and over again. But I've yet to see someone who owns a service franchise, like, right, like a rolling suds or a gutter cleaning franchise, who's like, yeah, I've got 200 trucks or when, you know, however many territories that equates to in the franchise world. But, you know, I've never seen someone doing that. So do you do you think A, it's possible or B, do you think there's a reason that that hasn't happened yet? You know, why isn't there the Greg Flynn of a service franchise? I think service franchises are have been kind of overlooked and the franchise industry as a whole, especially from like public perception in general outside the industry is, well, it's McDonald's, it's Chick-fil-A, it's Taco Bell, it's these fast food restaurants. Well, Last year in 2022 was the first year that the mid-market private equity transactions in franchising were higher on home services than the first time in history. And it was only like a couple percent higher, but like it's telling, right? It has happened. It has happened with 1-800-GOT-JUNK. So that's an example of it. You've got franchisees in that system that are doing 80 million a year, private equity-backed franchisees that own multiple markets and multiple territories and have lots of trucks. But at scale, I wouldn't say it's happened in the franchise space because home services in the last, especially since COVID has become really hot because people have recognized that during economic downturns and pandemics, people are still going to spend money on their home and making the things that the most valuable asset that they have more beautiful will always be a need. And so if you can bring you know, a replicable model into a market where you can theoretically get, you know, as many trucks as possible within a territory. I believe that that's a much better, and I guess not better, but like a faster way to profitability than building out another $600,000 store, right? Think about the debt service on that $600,000 store. For my model, you pay 35 grand down on a truck, and the, the payment's two grand a month, but the truck does about two grand per day in revenue. So like when you think about that at scale, it's like, okay, one extra location would be 600,000 if I go with this fast food restaurant or yeah. whatever the four wall you know location is, or I can just get one truck to capacity and then buy another one, get that truck to capacity. And now I've spent, let's just say it's three trucks. You spent $35,000 times three and you're going to also make a higher margin on a home service business than you are a restaurant. You're yep. running pretty razor thin margins, especially if you have like managers and regional managers and back end infrastructure on those brick and mortar locations. Whereas you could be 20, 25 or 30% EBITDA on a business that just costs less money to scale. Most people have at least if they've been reading my newsletter, that probably, you know, I've covered that a bit, right? That the service franchises are definitely higher margin and of course, less capital intensive. Less employee intensive too. Yeah, that's, that is, uh, it's true. 
I'm fascinated, Thomas, to just just see how uh, you know, like who knows, five, ten years from now, how many territories, or how many trucks, just the biggest Rolling Stones franchise that you have. <laughs> It'll be cool to see, man. And you know, you mentioned your requirements earlier. I'd like to kind of bring that up again because uh, sure. you definitely, when we talked about it offline, you have a higher bar for franchisees and a service business than definitely is normal. And that's, a, I think, it's a good thing because I'd say, on the whole, unfortunately, you know. I get it, right? Franchising is competitive. Every franchise that's being sold to someone else, theoretically, could be you, um, could be your brand, right? But I do think, I mean, there's just a, a lot of times to say, if this person can get the money together, I'm taking them. And that obviously doesn't really necessarily work out well for the franchisor. But yeah, do you want to just go through, like, what are your hard requirements for a candidate? And also just kind of give us some context on why you have that in place for your system. Yeah. So when I came into f- franchising, the first job I had in franchising, I was taught to sell as many units to one person as possible with the least amount of money out of pocket. And as long as they had $30,000 in the bank, they can sign up. That's what I was taught. Yep. I didn't know anything about franchising. Before that job, I thought McDonald's was what a franchise was, and I didn't know there were service-based businesses. It didn't feel right, but this is, again, I didn't know anything any better. I would call franchisees two weeks after they signed and they weren't contacted yet, but they were scheduled to go to training two weeks later. And then I rose the problem at where I was at and said, this isn't, you know, whatever. And I was eventually told, Hey, like if you don't really play nice with the other departments, like you won't rise up in this company. And so I basically put my head down, sold franchises and 200 locations. And most of them were to the wrong people. And I would call franchisees a year later, they'd hang up on me, and it absolutely killed wow. me. It yeah. killed me. It killed me. Now, they were purchased by a larger organization, and that larger organization had a ton of capital, and they bought that business that I worked for cash. So I was encouraged by that. But I mean, there was many times where I was like, maybe I need to find another career. This doesn't, like, I can't sleep at night um, sometimes. Yeah. So I've seen the other side of franchise development go the wrong way and also participated in it. And so I'm like very, very, this the next brand I worked on, we were turning away one to three people a month. I knew what that buyer looked like. And I treated that next brand as if it was my own because I was not about to be in a similar situation to where I was at with the first brand. And I tell you that because I want franchisees and franchisors to know what it looks like if you don't do it the right way. So to dig in deeper into your question, I sat down and I was like, okay, who is my buyer? Who's going to be successful? Who has a similar ethos to me? What does my culture look like? Here's my mission statement. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. And what we're trying to accomplish is build the biggest power washing company in the world by, by treating franchisees better than they can be treated anywhere else in the entire industry. We refer to ourselves as a franchisee company because as you and I have talked about, Franchisor is a four-letter word in a lot of circles. People think one of two things externally. One, a franchise is McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, whatever. Or they think, oh, I don't, you know, I, I want to buy a business, but I don't want a franchise. Or yeah. a buddy who bought a Quiznos or, and he had to close his business and went bankrupt. Or I, I have some friends who, who own Subways and they put another Subway across the street. And like that's irresponsible yeah. franchising, right? And so what I'm hoping to do is kind of set an example with this brand as to how it should be done so that future franchisors 
and future franchisees have a positive understanding of what it is that we can do as an industry, which is create significant wealth and give franchisees a path to doing that that they otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah. So I've turned away 28 people that weren't right, as I've mentioned to you. Okay. So I did that because I'm looking, I'm trying to build the biggest power washing company in the world, which is something that's like ridiculously extraordinary to accomplish. And you tell someone that and they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. So the people who come in, they have to have a higher risk tolerance at this stage. They're not going to have three years of data. They're going to need to be fully involved in actively growing the business 50, 60 hours a week, just like I am. And they're in it for the long haul. And they almost have like an unrealistic belief in themselves to accomplish it as long as they follow the system and they believe in the system and executing on the system. And so I have a very specific buyer and anyone else who's not that buyer, I turn away within the first call because I don't want to waste their time. I want them to be able to go look at brands that make more sense for them. And so, you know, if there are a lot of people who buy a franchise and they end up leaving a job and they buy another job and then two years later they say, well, I want to sell this business because I'm burnt out, but they try to sell the business and it doesn't have any value because they're the business. And that happens often. And so a lot of the people I've turned away, I felt like we're only going to be able to buy a job, not a business. And so my whole infrastructure is designed to teach franchisees at the beginning to think like a multi-unit owner. It's less about salary and more about enterprise value. What's your long-term goal and how can we help you get there? And so, you know, I just want to bring in people who actually have the capabilities to build a massive business. Like it's not a two to three truck operation for the people who are coming in. They're thinking about this from a five to 10 to 20 plus truck operation. How do I own multiple locations eventually in multiple states? I want private equity to be interested in my business in seven years. Like those are the types of people we're bringing in and they're leaving jobs where they're sometimes making 250 or $350,000 a year to scale this business full time. Well, a few things you said there. I mean, the example of of what could happen, right? They work for two years in a, you know, work, uh, they own a franchise for a few years, get burnt out and they want to sell it. I just think that that's something I've wised up to is that transfer rates within franchises, you know, the resales can actually be an indicator of the success. And like, I think the, what I would call the failure rate actually gets diluted because a struggling franchisee or an underperforming one, they won't go down as a failure because they sold it to someone. But like in reality, they sunk a ton of money into it and they're selling it for a fraction of their revenue. I mean, they've lost a ton of money and it won't go down as a failure on the books. But that is someone who probably would have been a lot better off just keeping their job. So I just think that's the way you were talking about it. Something for people to consider when they're evaluating brands. But also, I mean, you got to have a high uh, capital requirement, right? Like 250K, I think is what you said. So yep. what's the thought there? Because that's obviously even higher than the you know initial investment range in your FDD. Yep. So we do a minimum of two territories. We are not thinking about this from the perspective of someone who is a single unit operator. There is a very different mindset for the person who buys one unit and wants to be a little bit more careful versus the one, the franchisee who buys two, three units. So from a psychological standpoint and from a goal standpoint, we're looking at people who want to build a big business. And in order to build a big business, you need multiple areas. And so that's another part of the reason we've been so selective is because two territories is half a million people. That's in some cities, half the city, right? So that's a big, or the whole city, depending on the size of the city. And so 
my expectation is that the person who buys those territories is going to grow to multiple trucks within each territory. And so the other thing is, is that when you have a capital requirement that that's, that's that high, you just attract a different type of person versus the, hey, if you have fifty dollars to $100,000 in cash, we'll get you an SBA loan. You'll have a personally guaranteed 10-year note and you know we'll get you started. Typically, the people who have signed up, they have the money and assets. They've exited businesses before. They've been, they've saved. They have a pretty considerable 401k that they might roll over. They have multiple homes. They have rental properties. So they're typically more financially savvy, which I think is important because the more capital you have, the more risk you can take in a business, where if you're chasing an SBA loan that's six or $7,000 a month, it's harder to take those big swings. And so that's what we're thinking about. I mean, for someone to be successful in three territories, they're going to need close to 300 grand. And that includes working capital and down payment on truck number one and down payment on yeah. truck number two. But it is a realistic number of what you need to spend in order to grow a massive enterprise. You need a good amount of investment at the beginning if you want to get to two, three, four, five million dollar a year business. Absolutely. And yeah, it's funny as you're saying it, some people might be like, well, yeah, no, no shit, guys. That's, that's <laughs> not what it takes. But the reality is it's not, there's a lot of franchises where that is not the requirements. That's not the mindset that's kind of imposed by the franchisor. So yeah, I really love where your head's at, man. And look, I know uh, we're, we got to wrap up here, but I want to end it with, you know, we've talked about responsible franchise growth. How do you, you know, when you see these brands, that are out there and if they're selling hundreds and hundreds of units a year, given what we've talked about, where you really have, Dick, the expectations are aligned. The sales departments and ops departments are closely working together. You know, there sounds like there should be zero expectation, you know, misalignments or anything like that from franchisees coming in. So, and everyone's getting full support, not just financially from the franchisor, but operationally, right? So like, I mean, what goes in through your mind when you see these brands that are, are selling all these units? Are, are you just like, there's, because so, so, at a certain time, I think this, I'm like, there's no way an emerging brand can actually at a high level bring in all these new franchisees. But yeah, I'm curious for your take on, you know, that kind of pocket of the industry. Yeah. So being someone who has experience in franchising and know what it knows what it takes, you bring in someone who doesn't have any experience in franchising and they sell 150 180 units a year to 30 people or whatever. It's just, there's no way they're going to get the units open and there's no way they have enough capital necessary. And typically a lot of those brands are selling the businesses as either absentee or semi-absentee, which you have, you and I have spoken about, Yeah, which means you basically now as a franchisor, you have two franchisees. You have the one who thinks he can keep his job full-time or her job full-time that wants to get a return on investment for a business they know little to nothing about. And then you have, as a franchisor, now you have the general manager who needs field support and training and ongoing training. You have two franchisees that you now need to support internally with one royalty stream. It doesn't make a ton of sense, but 180 units are sold in a year. They're setting the expectation that they can buy five, six, seven territories or 10 territories and hire a general manager to run their business full-time. And what ends up happening is they end up having to leave their job anyways a year later, or they fold and it doesn't work. And you you see this with your business that you, you have, like there's closures. 
And what's what the people who who suffer are the franchisees who were told that they could do a certain thing that they can't do. And so it drives me absolutely crazy. And um and I you know when I spoke I was I was the keynote speaker at the uh, uh International Franchise Association's conference for emerging franchisors and um it was the I have never been the keynote before. I was terrified. It was over 300 people and I <laughs> talked for 30 minutes and I probably rewrote my speech like five times uh, before I <laughs> went out there and it's Friday night. My wife's like, can we hang out? And I'm like, no, I have to go sit in my front of my computer. And it's <laughs> my speech. But my, the point that I was trying to get across is like, listen, this is exactly how you do it. And we covered what happens when you're irresponsible and my experience with that. And then I went through 10 things that the franchisors can do to grow their franchise brand responsibly. And I kind of like, I really put a definition for the first time on responsible franchising. And now the International Franchise Association is looking to make that kind of the standard, which is really exciting. And so I put, you know, responsible franchising is a commitment to integrity, fairness, and unwavering support for franchisees, guiding them transparently and consistently on their journey as a franchisee so they can have predictable, repeatable, and scalable results. I also decided just in my analysis and my years of experience that there are four core tenets of responsible franchising that if you look at becoming a franchisor or someone who's looking to become a franchisee, you can ask these questions and say, well, how do you handle these four things? And so those four things are capital adequacy. So a franchisor needs a lot of money and they need to be able to have enough money to get all of the units open and to royalty self-sufficiency, assuming you know very little income coming from franchise fees, especially if they're using brokers and sales organizations. That's one. Choosing the right franchisees, so knowing exactly who your buyer is and who your buyer is not, and turning away the buyers who are the franchisees who are not right, and explaining to them why they're not right, and setting the proper expectations with the people who are selling the business. And then setting clear expectations, which kind of gets me into the next part, saying, okay, this is exactly what you can expect. And then talking operations regularly, because if they can expect something different or that's not the right franchisee, sales needs to change their what they're saying in order to continue to set that expectation, which is why franchise development and sales should talk to each other. And then sustainable growth. So if you can't add, if you're adding more franchisees than you're feasibly opening, your average unit volume's not where it needs to be, and the value of your business and the value of franchisees' business considerably decreases. And so if a franchisor is able to kind of take those things into account as they launch their franchise system, I believe it is an incredible opportunity for a franchisee to buy into and get to wealth generation. Without those things, I feel like even if one of those things is different, I feel like it puts a franchisee in a sticky situation. And I think that as we go into this next generation of franchisors, we need to kind of set standards of how things should be done and how they should not be done. And my hope is that through the work that I do in, in franchising for the years to come, because this is all I'm going to do forever, is build franchise brands. We're able to, to kind of show how it, it should be done, I guess. It's amazing, man. I don't think I've ever had a, a franchisor on here that this dialed in and focused on franchisee support. Uh, honestly. <laughs> I'm ready to quit this podcast and buy a Rolling Suds territory. <laughs> I'm, I'm pumped, man. This is amazing. Yeah, seriously, Aaron. Th this is going to be super valuable for not only the franchisors who listen to this, but again, franchisees or franchise buyers. I mean, these are the things you want to hear from your franchisor. And now you have the insight into, I think, 
you know, how are not just responsible. I mean, it's a level of sophistication and operations and, and experience that you have. You know, this is what if you're a first time franchise buyer, you, you want to be in with a franchise or who's thinking like this and has this kind of mindset. So, uh, yeah, Aaron, uh, where can people either follow you to get more of your content and or uh, Rolling Suds if yeah. they want to inquire? Yeah. So I put out a ton of free content online about how to be a good franchisor and a good franchisee. So you could follow me on uh, LinkedIn, Aaron Harper, Twitter, Rolling Sud CEO, um, Instagram, Aaron T. Harper, A-A-R-O-N T. Harper. And we'll be continuing to do that, putting short form content out. I want as many people as possible to get as much free advice on franchising as possible so that we can say, say, hey, like franchising is not just McDonald's or Subway or Quiznos. Like there's actually good franchisors and let me tell you about who they are and why they're good. And then to become a, a franchisee, you can message me directly on any of those uh, social media channels, direct message, or just to learn more information. It's just rollingsudsfranchise.com and you request information and we'll reach out and uh, and send you some podcasts. Um, if you type in Aaron Harper Rolling Suds, there's probably like 14 podcasts I've been on in the last year. So there's a ton of like content that's just organically out there you can just listen to. So those are some places. Amazing. Yeah, look, we'll, we'll plug uh, guys Aaron's LinkedIn, the Rolling Suds website, and a few others uh, in the show notes so you can follow him along as well as take a look at Rolling Suds. I know I'm super excited by this and, and to see the growth, man. So thanks again for sharing everything. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can talk soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Listen.